This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm Amit Ghosh, an internal medicine physician at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. You're all aware of what's going on in the world with COVID. COVID presents some great risk actually to the patients, but as we are finding out, as opposed to any other illnesses which physicians take care of, it's also posing a big risk and challenge to the to the health providers and the entire team. We are going to talk about the challenges in the management with COVID-19 patients, especially because of the off-label use of a couple of medications which has come up. We are going to focus today, especially on the medicine chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, which you would have heard of being used in the cases of patients who have severe cases of COVID illness. I'll just give you the statistics and that will give, give us the scope of what the problem is. The number of cases of COVID reported today in the US is over 260,000 cases. The number of active cases are 241,000 cases. Of that, serious and critical cases are over 5,700. The deaths till, till today is over 6,000 cases. So joining me today, is Dr. Michael Ackerman, who's a professor of, med of cardiology and is the director of the Long QT Syndrome Clinic. Dr. Ackerman is the world's expert in Long QT Syndrome and is also the director of the Mayo Clinic Windland Smith Rice Sudden Death Genomic Lab at the Mayo Clinic. The whole focus of today's talk is going to be an article which Dr. Ackerman and his team published and it's, it's available online for everybody from the Mayo Clinic proceedings. This was accepted and published on 25th March, 2020. I read the title. It is Urgent Guidance for Navigating and Circumventing the QTC Prolongation and the Torsadogenic Potential of Possible Pharmacotherapies for COVID-19. Let's welcome Dr. Michael Ackerman. Thanks for joining us today, Michael. Thanks a lot, Amit. It's great to get to be with you. Michael, um, it's, 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 you are an example of doing a research on the topic which you are a world expert on without realizing in future how we are going to tap to your potential in this very crucial crisis that we are having. Now that we are having this off-label use of chloroquine, I was reading your article with great interest. First of all, I wanted to, you to kind of talk something about why hydroxychloroquine could be an effective medication in the treatment of COVID-19. Yeah, Amit, I, I like the word you use of could be an effective therapy because we don't know the therapeutic benefit answer yet. And because of that, we have to be really careful about this risk-benefit balance that we're trying to strike when we're trying to decide, is this the right therapy to be given to my patient at this time? You know, the proposed uh, uh, therapeutic efficacy or mechanism of action is the notion that hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine, well-known anti-malarial agents that have been around for 50, 60, 70 plus years may interfere with the ability of the COVID-19 causing coronavirus to be able to penetrate 
and get into the lung cells and the heart cells uh, to do their damage and wreak their havoc. And second, if, those, if the virus does get in and triggers an inflammatory cytokine cascade or cytokine storm, then as an anti-inflammatory medicine, like how hydroxychloroquine is already being used on label for our patients with lupus, for example, who have an inflammatory disorder, maybe the medications like hydroxychloroquine can sort of calm that cytokine, cytokine storm. And so those are the proposed mechanisms of action for the potential therapeutic benefit. Uh, but we're still waiting uh, for the pronouncement of exactly what is the therapeutic efficacy of hydroxychloroquine with or without the addition of the antibiotic, the common antibiotic, azithromycin. As I understand, there is clearly no definite studies in the form of randomized trial. These are only in vitro studies which have shown and some observational data coming from China, but they have not reported exactly how chloroquine works. But I was reading your article and the mechanism that you have mentioned there with the reference it looks like it alters the angiotensin receptor 2 inhibitor, which, which is where the COVID, the coronavirus kind of attaches to the angiotensin 2 receptor to get into the cell. So right, exactly. So uh, the coronavirus can bind to the so-called ACE2 receptor, the angiotensin converting enzyme subtype 2 receptor, and in doing so does its uh, penetration uh, into the cells. But you know, you, you mentioned the anecdotal studies and that's where we're still at. And until we know the benefit precisely, the risk package for these medications has been there all along. You know, I am amid, I'm encouraged though, cautiously, I'm just a genetic cardiologist. So I'll let Dr. Fauci nationally and I'll let our own infectious disease experts here at Mayo Clinic tell us what we have concluded as the answer to therapeutic benefit, but hydroxychloroquine is actually no longer an off-label medication. As of what, a week ago? Maybe not even a week now, the FDA granted an emergency use authorization or an EUA for hydroxychloroquine for the purpose of COVID-19 therapy. So in a sense, the FDA has said, it is no longer off-label, it is temporarily on-label for the purpose of COVID-19 therapy, which translates into whether it's working or not and how much the benefit will be, we are starting to see hydroxychloroquine being used a lot. So before your team came up and really made the QT prolongation, which would be the focus of our talk today, a big known fact for hydroxychloroquine. The only thing that I had read about the infectious disease doctor saying, just check the G6PD. Yeah. And if the patient is not G6PD deficient, go ahead and give chloroquine to those patients. And then in your paper, you have cited several case reports, case studies. I would say just maybe some of them are one or two cases or maybe more of adverse effects. Could you talk about the number of cases which have been reported till now where patients who have been given hydroxychloroquine with, with COVID-19 infections have had significant adverse effects. While we wait the, the conclusion of efficacy, the risk package 
or the side effect package has been there all along, whether or not infectious disease experts uh, or, or specialists are cognizant of it. And that's exactly why we put forward this article in Mayo Clinic Proceedings is we were seeing the Wild West out there uh, in real time, uh, not among infectious disease, but infectious disease doctors, frontline physicians, cardiologists, which sort of range from what I would call QT cluelessness. In other words, they had no awareness of or respect for the possibility that these drugs can do drug-induced sudden cardiac death to side effect resignation. I had one cardiologist, not at Mayo, say, yes, these drugs will potentially cause treatment-induced sudden death once in a while, but if they work, we'll just accept this as friendly fire in the battle against coronavirus and COVID-19, all the way to the other extreme of QT paranoia, thinking that these medications are deadly and people are gonna be dropping left and right from the therapies. And uh, we said to each other, we have got to do something pronto because none of those views are correct. They're all off base and we need to restore some semblance of balance so that there is a healthy and an appropriate dose of respect given to this side effect, but not fear. And, and that was the whole genesis for the special article. As to the respect side of the equation, the FDA has this, as you know, the so-called adverse event reporting system or AERS, and there have been several hundred drug-induced cardiac, sudden cardiac deaths attributed to both hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin uh, independently. And now we're talking about a scenario of having a sicker host mm -hmm. potentially receiving not one of these QT prolonging medications, but potentially both of them. And depending on what host we're giving that to, depending on the phenotype of our patient, we are going to experience in some of them, not very often, a perfect storm where adding that medication is gonna turn out to be the wrong medication given to the wrong patient at the wrong time and have the sudden death treatment explosion come upon us. And we can neutralize this threat. That's the whole good news sure. of all of this. When, when I, um read your article, I learned a lot from it, but take us through the journey of already there were, I read from your article, there are 3 million patients in the world with long QT syndrome, the waiting with a QT interval of more than 470 milliseconds. On top of that, you have this elderly, semi-elderly with, with, with either reversible or non-reversible causes of QT prolongation. So can you just explain from this, if you were to tease out, how do you see the whole QT prolongation problem apart from even prior to chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine or azithromycin being given? What, is this, what are the landmines which could elevate the QT uh, right. interval so, in these cases? So one is know your QTC. Get that QTC value as a vital sign, just like a diabetic knows his or her uh, glucose number and then makes adjustments in their therapy accordingly. We, would, we are encouraging people and the healthcare providers to 
obtain the QTC value. And we'll, we'll talk about that as to how you do it. The other approach is know your patient and know your patient's QT risk factors that may or may not be present. You already mentioned the one that I uh, think about the most, and that's congenital long QT syndrome. But that syndrome affects only one in 2,000 human beings. So most of the patients who will do a drug-induced sudden cardiac death from the treatment of their COVID-19 from hydroxychloroquine are not going to be my patients with a 1 in 2,000 rare disorder of long QT syndrome. They're going to have other QT risk factors. There's many, many diseases where that disease process itself aggravates the heart's electrical recharging system, which is reflected or summarized by that QTC value. And so diabetics have longer QT intervals than non-diabetics and so forth. So what is your patient's set of diseases and are any of those diseases that have already been there pre-coronavirus, are they QT agitating? What medications are our patients on? There's over, some may not know this, but Amit, there's over 100 FDA approved medications that are approved and on label that have a QT prolonging side effect as part of their insert package. A hundred. Yeah. What would be the common ones? The most common ones, a couple of them you could just let us Yeah, know. a common one is azithromycin or the trade name Zithromax, the z pack right. So that's one of the most common antibiotics, the antibiotic levofloxacin. Virtually every selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor used for the treatment of mental health issues with anxiety and depression. Sure. Um, there's just many, many of them. And so are our patients already on one or more QT prolonging medication? If yes, and we're going to start these other medicines, is there room to temporarily stop them? There may not be, and it may be unsafe to stop that already present QT prolonging medication. So know the, your patient's disease status. Are any of the diseases intrinsically QT aggravating? The medications, are they on any QT prolonging medications? And then third, what's the state of electrolyte health? We know that patients with low body potassium, hypokalemia, low body magnesium, magnesium, and low body calcium, those electrolyte disturbances are themselves intrinsically QT aggravating. And so you can see how the component parts can come together where we are walking the patient closer and closer to the edge of the proverbial cliff. And then the addition of these QT prolonging medications that happen to be or might be COVID-19 therapeutic may be just the wrong thing that pushes them over the edge. And then we have the tragedy of treatment-induced sudden cardiac death. So I was kind of startled where you mentioned the long QT, which is your area, which is like one in 2000. But the numbers you have given here, the really the COVID patients, you said as much as I was reading your numbers, it's almost one in 100. And you gave a number of 4,000 patients among 400,000 could be having this QT prolongation problem. And already in the world, we've had a million cases not all of them are critical. That's why I was reading the numbers of critically sick right now in the U.S. itself is 5,700 patients as of today. They're in the ICU and some are waiting to get in. 
So if, if I do the math, there could be any, any amount of cases. Already we probably had 10,000 cases of QT which were either never identified and were in parts of the world where this knowledge was not there or they or or it just just went under and nobody nobody thought about it so that's a whole lot of cases yeah and i think that's what really needs to be kept in the balance and i think you hit it on the head when you said most coronavirus infected patients may not need any therapies so if we're going to be asymptomatic and navigate through the infection just fine, the last thing we want to do is add a drug that we may not even need that has a known uh, side effect that happens to be not trivial, not numbness, tingling, lightheadedness, runny nose, but oh, by the way, that medicine every once in a while will kill you suddenly. So you really have to think about the numbers. And sure. I, I like the example just because it's easy. Let's say we are now gonna treat 1 million people. And that's not so crazy to think that it could get to that number of people who we might intentionally treat with a treatment. Now, the 1% who are a priori at higher risk, that's a real number. That's 10,000 people who, are, who have walked themselves closer to the edge of the cliff where the perfect storm is starting to descend upon the patient, and we better really be minding our A, Bs, and Cs uh, in terms of risk-benefit, in terms of countermeasures and neutralizing the threat. And at 1 million people, that, that means that 50 to 100,000 have a QTC value that if you and I knew it, we would want to pause and think about it and see what neutralizing factors we could implement to make the therapeutic window for these medications as large as we could make it. Uh, and, and that's why I really think we're at a time where we should be trying to know your QTC, know your patient's QTC. And if logistically you just can't, then at least know what QT risk factors are already present in your patient and see whether there's room to counter those risk factors, to normalize those electrolytes and so forth. We can do the both and, meaning if these drugs work, and I'll still put it out there as the if, if they work, we can do the and part, which is treat them effectively and neutralize the risk of treatment associated complications, particularly the one that I care about the most, which is treatment associated drug induced sudden cardiac death from drug-induced QT prolongation. Fortunately, 81% we know are asymptomatic out of the, out of the right. you know, about a million patients. And a small number, about 5 to 10%, they are the ones who are going to the critical care, depending on where, which part of the world they are. We are seeing in Italy and Spain and many other areas is much more. But the important thing is now, I've received a phone call and we've done the triage system because there are many systems working in, in COVID. COVID has completely turned us upside down. There is telemedicine, there's ER, somebody calls, we keep the asymptomatic patients away. We say, you don't need medicine, just be, just be there in your house, don't get out from two weeks or so, and we'll make periodic phone call. The small group that comes in now to the hospital, how do you separate them out into which group will need monitoring and which group would say just minor surveillance will do. So what, 
in your paper, you had given us some great tips on that. Can you talk about it? Right. I think it really starts with, and, and, I, and, and I think what was helpful is what you emphasized is there may not need to be a million people who need to be intentionally treated. But let's say there's 10,000 people who have bad COVID-19 and you and I want to try to try, try to address it therapeutically. And now we're talking hydroxychloroquine with or without azithromycin. That 10,000 people still means 500 to 1,000 who have a very real potential of experiencing the dark side of these powerful medications. So how would you neutralize and mitigate that? Correct the QT risk factors, which we had talked about, but even better if we could, it would be know your QTC value. Because if I knew that value in that patient, 90% would get the green light go, kind of like at the airport, cleared. You are cleared. And you could, and we, the provider, would know that that host has a lot of safety margin, that we can add the hydroxychloroquine. We could even add both drugs, and we probably still have plenty of safety margin, so we could be sort of relaxed about it. And if we knew the QTC, we would have 5 to 10% who would be placed in the yellow light pause category. And if we knew the QTC value, we would be able to find that 1% where the summation of their QT risk factors has put them into the red light category. And if you and I knew that, we would be hitting the stop button and we would say, time out. Before I start this medication, I really have to weigh the risk and benefit in the balance carefully. And I need to neutralize what QT risk factors I can neutralize. I might need to monitor more closely because if I'm going to give the medication anyway, I better have the antidote uh, ready in case that drug, in fact, did push the patient over to the, the edge. We did have the perfect storm and we did have drug-induced torsades occur where we have to shock the patient back. So, so I mentioned, you did, uh, what, what are the numbers for your green light or your yellow? Yeah. As for our physicians there and for red. So red so is red is easy. Red is the QTC, the patient whose QTC before drug exposure is already at or above 500 milliseconds. That's the line in the sand that if you are going to add something to the patient that you know is QT agitating, you better be really careful because that patient is telling us that torsades is not too far around the corner. Torsades being the potentially lethal ventricular arrhythmia, where if that rhythm doesn't abort and revert back to normal sinus rhythm on its own or by shock, then the next step in that awful death spiral is death itself from the heart, heart's electrical system stopping altogether. And so that line is the 500 millisecond line. Everybody must know that line. Everybody must respect the QTC 500 millisecond person a lot because that's where this side effect uh, issue is gonna rear its head and bite us if we don't respect the 1%. The others are the green light, which is the vast majority of our patients who can safely take these drugs. They don't have to be QT freaked out or worried or paranoid about this side effect because there's a lot of margin. And, and as we put in the algorithm, 
that is going to be under 460 for children, under 470 for men, and under 480 for women. And that, those, that green light indicator would be provided, reached, for 90% of all of our patients. And then the yellow light is in between that number but below 500 milliseconds. So does the yellow behave more like a green or can it go towards the red? Well, we don't know. And, and that way, the, the yellow light person is telling us, like the yellow light in the, in the traffic signal, proceed with caution because we don't know how they're going to react. And that's why we would have a on-drug assessment of the QTC to see if is that person declaring himself or herself as what we call a QT reactor. Mm -hmm. So if you were green light or yellow light before you got the drug, and now on drug, your QTC increased by 60 milliseconds or more, or you tripped over the 500 line, you've declared yourself. You said, hey, everybody, respect this side effect because I'm reacting. My heart's electrical recharging system is not liking the addition of hydroxychloroquine with or without azithromycin. And I'm telling you ahead of time that I, my, the patient, I've started to walk closer to the edge of the cliff. And the thing that you and I don't know, Amit, is we will never get to know how many lives have already been saved by increasing the QTIQ out there and increasing the respect for this side effect possibility such that consciously or subconsciously, we have already been starting to look at the patient's medications or we've already started to correct their low potassium or we, started, or we decided let's just add hydroxychloroquine right now instead of both. And so this is sort of like the whole thing of you know, aviation and near miss collisions. It's hard to document how many near misses you, you, you and your algorithm have been able to uh, enable the, the perfect storm to get short circuited. So I'll, I'll get to the personal issues, the risk for the personal issues, but I've heard you talk with medical students, fellows, the eyeball test. So can you describe just when you're looking at the EKG, what are the things you look at? I mean, of course, the QTC comes up, but before that, what, what can you easily see and say, no, this is a normal QT? So, yeah, so that you can do in a nanosecond. And that is the eyeball test that you're talking about is you could stare at the ECG or you could stare at the patient's telemetry strip if they're in the inpatient unit already on monitoring. And if that QT interval that you can, are staring at by eye is less in duration than half of the RR interval, which is the RR interval, if the QT is less than half of that, no matter what QT rate formula correction calculator you put that in, the QTC will always be less than 460. So on the fly, if that QT is less than half of the RR, your green light go. That's and a great thing. That, for, in, in several places, they are now calling medical student, the fourth year and the first year intern, saying, hey, come help us out. We are, in New York and other places, they're swamped. And this could just be a helpful learning tool for them to say, you're a green light. And, and this is particular, is, is, is a perfect to go. 
Yeah, and the other thing that the other thing I meant that is sort of hot off the press because it's not even on the press is we at Mayo Clinic will be releasing on Monday or Tuesday an online QTC calculator where all you have to do for your patient is enter the QT as you eyed it or measured it and the patient's heart rate and boom, it will tell you what is the QTC number by whatever formula you love and it will show you is that patient green light, yellow light, or red light? And so and repeating the number 500 and above, really, it's red is the line on the sand, as you said. Anything below 480, whether it's a woman who's 480, 470 for men, and pediatric is 470 or 460, what you mentioned, right. they are all in the safe zone. We are also using it as a prophylaxis for, for lung transplant patients prophylaxis of COVID-19 because these patients are at higher risk. And right now the protocol says chloroquine 500 milligrams daily for two days and then 500 milligrams weekly starting uh, seven days after the loading dose for a total of three months. So the kind of device and monitoring that you're talking about is no longer a fiction. I, I think that needs yeah. to come. Patients already have mobile devices and to be able to incorporate some kind of a system where they can look at the look at their QTC rate and that's all they need to know or the rhythm which is already there would be of great use but now is the question for you I'm giving you a picture now this is a rushed epidemic going on there is chaos there's ventilators there's intubation people are running here and here they're wearing PPE they're running short of PPE now you tell me if you're an armchair cardiologist and you sit there and say oh just go and get an EKG how do you get an EKG without by exposing the patients, putting all those wires? Your chance of getting infected as a personal is high. Right. Uh, you can, you can, and then you're saying, I'm going to give you chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine. I have to monitor it, which means somebody has to do this all over again. I know the inpatient setting, you can, you can do it easier because of the monitoring system. How is AI helping us in this? What are the recent research advances which has gone on? where with minimum risk to the, to the medical personnel and to the patient and being mindful of the PPE use, not running out of mask and gown and everything else, how do you get to this QTC? It's so simple in, um, you know, in uh, peacetime. Right. In peacetime is no problem. This is not peacetime, it's a wartime. No, how do, how is, do you get to it? This is wartime and I, and I, and I really appreciate the chance because you know, it's one thing being at the armchair, it's another thing being at the front line. And so we, we wanna make it as simple as possible. And so that's why you noticed in our Mayo Clinic Proceedings article, we didn't say get a 12 lead electrocardiogram, the ECG. We said, know your patient's QTC value. And you might say, hey, that's semantic. That's the same thing because the only way I can get my patient's QTC is from a 12 lead ECG time out, that's no longer true. That's what artificial intelligence and uh, in innovation has been doing. And so you're right, the 12 lead ECG, I don't like that QTC solution in the wartime. Because like you said, that means I'm asking one of my ECG technicians to go in and out with the 12 lead ECG machine to a coronavirus infected patient's room. 
that doesn't sound so appealing for that technician. And that doesn't sound so appealing for the use of personal protective equipment and the use and the use and the use for just, for just getting the QTC. So the telemetry for our inpatients, that's easy. We already have the QTC, it's there. We just need to get used to not relying on the 12 lead ECG as the way to obtain that vital sign. And then the AI solution, that's actually been brewing for the QTC for over three years. And so we're starting to see innovation accelerate. Everything, everything's going at a crazy speed in every sector around us as we're trying to come up with all hands on deck solutions. And this is yet another one. And there are already hospitals throughout the world who have implemented. So I like the way you said uh, research with you which you did in the BC era is now being used in the AD era and the zero and the AD. But imagine I don't have, I'm, I'm in a smaller hospital. I don't have your fancy um, technique. I should get it. It shouldn't be that pricey. I should be getting it. But how do you manage it at right. the current moment? How would you still manage it to optimize least amount of interaction or least amount of uh, infection as far as the PPE management is concerned, the personal is concerned, should it be one person using the, the, the machine? Yeah. How, how should it be done? Yeah, I think, uh, I think so now we have to get to uh, off of our, our ideal world and reality testing. So how do we do it right now uh, for the various boots that are on the ground? And I, I personally think that if they're in the inpatient setting and they're needing to be monitored, we already can find out their QTC. So to me, that's easy for anywhere. The data is on the telemetry strip. We just have to look at it. If they're not needing to be put on monitoring, but we think we ought to treat them, and then we're saying, I want the 12 lead ECG. I, I think we have to have a probably a healthy debate and say, do we really want to do that? Maybe I just need to accept that I can't get that value and I'm going to mitigate it by neutralizing all of the patient's known QT risk factors that are modifiable. Adjust medications, make sure potassium is normal, that kind of thing. If we said, no, we're gonna get a 12-lead ECG, that patient deserves to know his or her QTC and I, the provider, want to know it. Then I think, we need to have a dedicated 12-lead ECG machine. One, that's gonna be in the coronavirus positive environment. And just accept that that machine's contaminated, if you will. And one or a select number of uh, ECG technicians going in and out of the room. Or we train the, the nurses team, the nursing team, the health care provider team, that already has to be in that room yeah. to how do you put on these leads? That's not hard. So that is a trainable thing where we could then remove the presence of yet another person going in and out and using the mask to what about the team that actually has to be there for that patient? And can we rapidly teach them how to do that? It's teachable. So that becomes another potential a solution if as, we I, as I hear you, there's so many steps you have to do yeah. just to circumvent 
because of corona. So there's not only patient-related uh, risks, there is personal risk, and the new device would probably obviate a lot of them. And I think your paper has given a good, good description on how those um, new devices can be used. But currently the treatment is day one, you give two tablets, like 400, becomes 800, and then you give one tablet each for the day, uh, from day two to day five. So it's a five day, four to five day treatment. How long is the effect of the medications there for you to monitor QT? Do we stop monitoring at day five or do we monitor the QTC in these patients for slightly longer? That was my question. It's a great question and the true answer is we don't know. Um, and, and the true implementation answer will be, it depends on how are we obtaining the QTC as a vital sign. If the patient has his or her own smartphone device, we can monitor that indefinitely. That can be charted in the hospital on an every nursing shift chart uh, type thing. If it's gonna be a 12 lead ECG as the technological solution where we're still using something that was first developed, oh, over a hundred years ago, then people are gonna say, wait, green light go patient, everything else going fine. I'm not even gonna bother checking because that's just too much exposure issue, too much PPE utilization issue. So how often and how frequent and how far out past therapy do we do continued QTC monitoring is gonna depend on a lot of factors. Sure. Now I take you to a scenario that this is a case where we have discussed uh, the patient has already crossed the line of the sand, is 500, is in the CCU, you have to give the patient or you decide with the family, the family is pushing you even in spite of the lack of evidence or whatsoever, because the press is always bringing somebody, a patient from here or there saying, this was the medicine, this is what did it. Hydroxychloroquine fixed me. So now you're, you're giving the medication and you're monitoring the QT, but what do you do? How do you monitor it? Do you, what precautions do you do? Do you have a defibrillator? or some kind of device for the patient, or you just use it when needed? How do you monitor that risk? Right, and so I think really how we're gonna monitor that and how we'll navigate that risk ultimately is gonna depend on what is the strength of the efficacy signal. Because if there is benefit of hydroxychloroquine with or without azithromycin, and I hope there is, wouldn't that be wonderful if some of the non-physicians, non-scientists actually nailed it and based upon the early data that you and I would never use to declare efficacy, we're in fact right. And there is benefit. Then we will have to figure out how to neutralize the risk side effect. If it turns out that these drugs don't have true benefit and they're not much better than sugar pill, well, they're gonna vanish from the treatment scene in the measure, in, in measured in weeks or months they will be been there, done that, moved on. And so again, it's all gonna depend on what is that therapeutic benefit signal. So let's say there is benefit. And now I have a red light patient who you and I think, I better treat their COVID-19 and I better treat it fast with the drug that has demonstrable benefit, but they're red light. Well, the way we'll neutralize that is we will rev up their potassium before the infusion. Instead of having the potassium at four, we're gonna drive it to five 
to help the heart's electrical recharging system. We may prophylactically add magnesium infusion as well. So we do our counter move. And then we'll say, and if that counter move didn't work, we're gonna be ready to defibrillate the patient should those measures have not been enough in that patient who told me he was red light, who I knew was red light, but we still concluded that it still was in the best interest of the patient to try this treatment strategy where we now are seeing proven therapeutic benefit. Again, this is the, the scenario where you and I now have the privilege of knowing that these drugs are truly working and we don't know that answer quite yet. Yeah, so hopefully, hopefully that answer will be there and that, that should help us uh, one way or the, or the other. Um, so those are, those are really excellent problem, uh, excellent uh, answers. And looks like the horizon right now, when I was talking about the azithromycin, I call my infectious disease specialist here at Mayo. They are not combining chloroquine with hydroxychloroquine with azithromycin just because of the risk that, that the cumulative effect of, of, uh, of elevating the QT prolongation with these two medications. Well, Ahmed, if I could jump in there, and that's what you're gonna see other places deciding in their risk mitigation strategy, right? At Mayo Clinic, we've said, we're gonna do monotherapy. We're gonna do hydroxychloroquine alone right now. We're not ready to jump on the combination therapy strategy of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. Other places might do that. And the other places that are doing the both, they may say to themselves, yes, I normally am doing the both, but for this red light patient, I'm not going to. I'm gonna just start with hydroxychloroquine monotherapy. And that would be another you know, risk mitigating strategy. Thank you, Mike. Uh, you did cover a lot of uh, a lot of these very complex issues, and um, just reframing from what I'm understanding, you're saying most important is to know the QTC of the patient. I would I would really really uh, want all our physicians provider to read this article. It's Mayo from Mayo Clinic Proceedings, 25th March, 2020. Urgent guidance for navigation and circumventing the QT prolonging and torsadogenic potential of the possible pharmacotherapies for COVID-19. It's an excellent summary of not only COVID-19, QT, and everything around it, along with artificial intelligence and how artificial intelligence can help us. It's it's going beyond just just a talk, and we were we were just dabbling on it um, till now. And all of a sudden, the tsunami of events which have happened because of COVID has opened it up. But more important is basic things first, the, the, the way of looking at the EKG and looking at the difference between RR interval over the, the, the QT interval would be less than half of RR interval. Patient is completely safe, green light. That's a good point to know. The next point uh, uh, you re-emphasize and emphasize many times is knowing the risk of the patients, knowing what the potassium is, knowing what the calcium is, knowing your hospital and knowing your system. If you are in a hospital system, which is right now in chaos, you have to come up with how to protect your personal, to have a dedicated EKG machine, to have all the parameters to look at patients who are getting this medication, hydroxychloroquine, and is it really 
working to have a kind of a rushed shared decision making kind of a model uh, and it's very very difficult at this time to have those kind of decisions where uh, everybody is so wired up with the patients um, their their relatives are not allowed to get into the hospital they're going to be talking over phone so the discussion will be rushed and they'll be agreeing to whatever we say just to save the loved one so the, it's no longer an off-label use, as you mentioned. It has been approved by FP, FDA, but as the data grows, I think we will know one way or the other, the jury will be out, whether we have to uh, give this medications or not. But I cannot imagine that you have so many cardiologists in, in the country to deal with this QT prolongation issues. So I think your article is so vital uh, the online QT calculator is important because it has to go not only from cardiologists, but of course from internal medicine residency, infectious disease, critical care, the, the nurses. In fact, I would even teach the patients, relatives to be able to monitor the QTC yeah. from a distance if they can, because this seems to be, QT is no longer a fashionable tool, which was there that only 3 million patients have it. Uh, you give them azithromycin or erythromycin, they can drop dead. But right now, it is real. Uh, and some of the medications are, are adding to it. Is there any yeah. last words you have, Mike? Yeah, and I think, uh, Ahmed, I think that was a great summary. And I really appreciate uh, the partnership with you all and getting this information out because knowledge is power. I, I have said to my long QT syndrome families throughout the world that, you know, hashtag refuse to fear. So I refuse to fear and I embrace the knowledge is power and we need to have awareness. We can only talk to our patients uh, in a real way about risk and benefit if we truly know the risk. And if we were ignorant of this side effect, the possibility of these drugs, that ignorance will cause the sudden deaths of some of our patients. We have to be aware. Once we're aware, we can neutralize this threat actually quite easily overall. Mm -hmm. And in order to have that conversation, we actually need to know the benefit. And you and I will accept more risk if we see that the therapeutic benefit of these medications is really there. And we hope it is. And if it is, we'll navigate the, the, the risk-benefit calculus just fine. If the benefit isn't there, this treatment option is going to disappear fairly quickly. So the hydroxychloroquine, just to clarify, is no longer off-label. It's technically not on-label. It's just that the FDA has granted us an emergency use authorization, which effectively makes it temporarily on-label. But I want to thank you. And I, I do want to just take a moment to give a shout out to the we are all in this together effort. It, our part in this battle was to while COVID-19 therapies are coming, is to do everything we can to minimize the collateral damage where some of the treatments could inadvertently cause the tragedy of drug-induced QT prolongation, which could lead to drug-induced torsades, which could end in drug-induced sudden death. We did not do this alone, so I really wanna thank my chair of cardiovascular medicine, Dr. Paul Friedman, who is one of the co-authors, I wanna thank Dr. Peter Noseworthy, who is the director of Mayo Clinic's ECG laboratory 
as we are very rapidly moving from the ECG laboratory to this mobile solution under his leadership. And also Dr. John G. DeSessi, who is the first author, who he's one of Mayo Clinic's cardiology trainees who took this vision that I had and wrote like crazy to, to put together this urgent guidance. And then everything is moving at warp speed, I said. That's, and, and the scientific publication world is no different. This would not have happened and gotten out there so timely. Think about it. The paper came out before the FDA granted the emergency use authorization for hydroxychloroquine. And that is because of Mayo Clinic proceedings. And so thanks to the, its editor, Dr. Carl Nath, and to the associate's cardiovascular editor, uh, the associate editor who focused on cardiovascular issues, Dr. Scott Wright, they and the Mayo Clinic proceedings, the reviewers, and their publisher did a, a, a job that I'll never get to see again in, in my life. And that never see again in my life is from the day the article was conceived to the day it was published online was six days. Wow. So we were talking about the cardiovascular complications and COVID-19 with Dr. Michael Ackerman. Thank you again for your time, Mike. We will continue to bring you the updates on the situation as events unfold. And, and Google Michael Ackerman, and I'm sure he's going to be publishing many other articles, uh, blogs on this issue. And it's going to come from Mayo Clinic too. We haven't seen. We are actually waiting for, in Minnesota, for the peak to happen in the next two or three weeks. So we'll, we'll bring you much about it. If you have enjoyed the Mayo Clinic podcast, please subscribe. But it's more important, stay healthy, wash your hands, keep some physical distance, and then we'll see you back next week. Thank you.